0: I've been reflecting recently on the purpose of the book of Ephesians, and I, I think that um, one of the traps in a book like this, when we, when we study a book where Paul goes through uh, the gospel, really, he preaches the gospel so, so frequently through the book of Ephesians, one of, the, one of the, the traps that we could fall into is thinking that it's redundant and thinking, ah, oh, we've heard this before. And there's elements of, of what we'll get into today in Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue this journey through this book uh, that might even sound a little bit familiar, like, oh you know, maybe I think maybe I've heard this sermon already. Uh, and, and I don't know that it's our job to try to put some kind of new or fresh twist on Scripture. I think our job is to preach the Word. I, I think our job is to get into Scripture and see what God would say to us. But I, I did want to challenge you today. That as you're listening to what Paul would say to us from this passage, I want to invite you to hear this as a person who maybe needs God to do a work in your life. And if there's an area in this sermon that convicts you today, uh, I guess I could say you're welcome, but we trust that it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who convicts the church. Amen. But I also thought that it would be good for us to, to listen to a sermon like this one today with the mind of a minister. That if you're on the kingdom side of this conversation already, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you're serving God with your life, that, that the idea is that not only God wants to do something in your life, but we believe at Life Church, and we believe from reading the word, that God wants to also do something through your life. And so maybe this sermon won't be just a conviction for you today. If it is, praise God for that and give your heart to Him in the conviction. Uh, but maybe it would also be an invitation for you to, uh, to, to step into a new way of talking to people. And so uh, if you hear me say something today that, that sounds familiar to you, then let it be a challenge to take what we say here, what we learn from the word, and use it as a script as we go and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. So Lord, we just continue in this heart of praise and this heart of prayer today that you would help me to say what I need to say, that you would help me preach the word this morning in a way that is not just relevant, God, but that is inspiring that is impactful, that is convicting, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you would touch our lives by your Holy Spirit and through your word. Would you do a work in us so that you could also do a work through us as we learn from you today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our teaching text today is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We're going to get all the way to the end of chapter 2 today. Let me read to you in the New Living Translation this week. It says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He's making a reference there to the old covenant, the old old law, where you had to make regular sacrifices uh, all the time in order to be in God's good graces. Jesus, Paul goes on to say, he made... Peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of, his, of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. It's a, it's a, it's a lot, I know. <laughs> There's a lot there. Um, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna cover some good territory today, and uh, you you might be uh, surprised at how actually how clear uh, all of that actually comes out to be. But let me ask you a question before we get uh, into this passage today. Have you ever watched one of those uh, house remodeling shows? you know, the ones on like HGTV or, or whatever other channel. Um, here, here's a synopsis of, of one of these shows. It goes something like this, right? There's the, there's a couple of hosts and they have kind of like a quirky relationship. You know, she's all business. He's problematically goofy. Uh, there's a couple who who are looking to to buy some property they they want to buy something like a like a rustic six bedroom cottage with 100 acres of mature apple trees within cycling distance of every major landmark in the city of Toronto or Austin or wherever you know and they and they want that six bedroom rustic house for their family of 3 and a dog that only has three legs uh, you know, the husband is a dog walker and she sells kombucha out of her converted VW bus and their budget is something like $500,000. You've seen these shows, right? There's another thing that all these shows have in common besides all of the weird scenarios that bring these people to uh, to the television. They all walk you through the same process. Once they figure out the house that they're going to get, they... There's always the demo day. There's the process of demolition. They have to deconstruct some stuff. And then they have to kind of fix whatever they find is messed up, right? And then there's the reconstruction. And then at the end, there's the big reveal of everything that's awesome. But really, it's those three steps that are similar in all of these shows. There's the demolition, the fixing or the repairing, the, 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 the rewiring of stuff, it, all of the surprises, and then the reconstruction. I think about these shows in the context of this text, and I wonder if sometimes this is the way that God looks at our lives, right? He's out there been looking for the perfect house, and, and he looks at us, and he says, oh, I would love to live there, but you are in desperate need of a reconstruction, right? Anybody? Just me? Okay, I'm working on it, guys. Give me some grace. Uh, God looks at us like this and Paul actually gives us a little bit of a road map of the way that God wants to do this reconstructing work in our lives. So today in this teaching text, we're going to see how Paul actually walks us through the process from demolition to reconstruction. So listen again as we start with phase one of this reconstruction project as Paul makes his point beginning with demolition. Look back at verse 14. It says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. That's all like the gospel. Here's the demolition. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Now the question is, what is that wall and who was it separating, right? It's a wall of hostility, by the way. Uh, it's not a wall of religion, it's not even a wall of sin, it's a wall of hostility, which for the record covers both religion and sin. This wall of hostility separated us from God. calls it a wall, it's almost like a ceiling. It's the thing that separates us from God because we were dead in our sin. We were already talking about that today. We were dead without hope, without Jesus Christ. And God says that because of what Jesus did, that wall of hostility that separates us from God is completely demolished. But there's another way that Paul describes this wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You see, the Jews were God's chosen people, and the Gentiles were, well, literally everybody else. And, and Paul is saying that the wall of hostility between people groups was torn down because of the work of Jesus. James helps us understand a little bit about this wall of hostility and how it's actually rooted in our own sin. In James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, James writes this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Like Your own passions are what cause all the problems in your life. It says, you desire and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and wage war, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Here, like in many other places in Scripture, we can see that our own desires, which our, our our desires left to ourselves, are sinful. We are looking to please ourselves, and Paul helps us understand, and James helps us understand that those desires build a wall between ourselves and God, but also Because our fleshly desires are the root of all of our wars and bitterness and fighting, infighting within the church and fighting globally, because that's all rooted in our desires, that also built a wall of hostility between us and other people. And whoever you think of when you think of other people, that's exactly what that wall of hostility does. It otherizes other people. So whatever category you think you're in, and there's an other group of people, there is a wall of hostility that Jesus came to to tear down between us and whoever the other is, but ultimately also between us and God. And praise God for that. Thank God that he came to tear down the wall of hostility between us and God. I confess that sometimes we struggle with that wall between us and other people, though, don't we? But Jesus came to tear that down. And interestingly enough, he did it through a violent act. That violent act was his death, his crucifixion. Which, by the way, carry that thought even further. Not only did Jesus tear down that wall of hostility through a violent act, but he was actually the one receiving violence in order to tear down a wall. He wasn't the officiant of violence in order to win a war against sin. He received violence in order to win a war against sin. This is is why the CSB translation of this passage doesn't say that Jesus brought us peace. It actually says, for he is our peace. And, And being our peace, his identity is peace. He brought both groups together as one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus waged a war on death and sin by remaining peaceful in the face of violence. That's very countercultural. And just for the record, this isn't an isolated idea. The idea or the concept that Jesus is or has peace is not unique to this passage of Scripture. Let me give you a little bit of a shotgun of scripture here that talks about peace. Isaiah 53, 5 says, he being the Messiah, which we know is Jesus, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 7, you getting the point, there's a lot. Let's keep going. Philippians 4, 7, don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the Peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians three fifteen. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts. The Second Thessalonians, Thessalonians three sixteen. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace in every way, always. And then Jesus drives this point home for himself in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you like the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. And finally, John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have. You want to guess what he says? Peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered or overcome the world. So the Old and the New Testament alike point to the Messiah, the coming King, who we know has come, is Jesus, who is risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father praying for the church that he is the Prince of Peace. And this same Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and other people, by being utterly himself, the Prince of Peace. He didn't need to fight for it. He just needed to be himself. And The word peace here actually comes from a root word, which means to join together or to tie into a whole. The idea is taking separate parts and tying them or knitting them together into, mo- into a mosaic, creating something new out of disjointed pieces. So you might say that the goal of peace is unity. Which Paul seems to know here, if you look back at verse 14, he says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Peace produces unity. First between us and God, and then between us and other people. Dallas Willard says of peace that it is not the absence of conflict, it is shalom or fullness of life. Peace is a rest of will where where your will actually rests. It's a rest of will that comes from a divine assurance about how things will turn out. Peace comes, unity with God comes when you rest in knowing how things will turn out. So, we can be at peace with God and with other people because Jesus, who is peace, made peace possible where before there was only hostility, warfare between us and God and us and other people. So, he did this because step one of any good reconstruction project is you have to tear something down. You have to do a a demo day. And then then like any other good restoration show, Paul moves on to what we're going to call here in Christian terms, reconciliation. This is a word that Paul uses, but this is the phase where they start fixing all of the stuff. Uh, Let's read back in verse 15 how Paul puts it. He did that. Jesus did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. That's how he tore down the dividing wall. And he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself... One new people from the two groups. Verse 16, together is one body, Christ reconciled or joined back together without conflict. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. He took the two groups and reconciled them together to God. You see how that works? Did, did my fancy hand signals help you understand how that worked? He reconciled them together to God. Thank you. Never took a sign language class. I probably, it's probably not helpful in any way. Verse 17 says, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So you watch these shows, and after the demo day, there's always the surprise. There's always that wall that has mold in it that nobody knew had mold in it, and then they have to, oh, it have to tear that wall down. Or there's always that, that, that electrician that comes in, and he almost kills himself, right? He probably doesn't really kill himself, but they act like he did because drama gets you to come back after the commercial break. And, and what they tell you is they, they say this one thing every time. I don't know who did this original wiring, Right? but we're going to have to redo the whole thing. Right? And then they tell you about how they're gonna like rip all the wiring out and, and they have to rewire all of the stuff because if you accidentally turn this switch on with the wind blowing in the right direction on a rainy day, then you could electrocute yourself and burn the whole neighborhood down, and you really don't want that. Right? Or or they come in and they find out that the foundation is completely shot and they have to relay the, the, the concrete in like one entire room in the house, and for some reason don't have to do that in the rest of the house. Probably again drama, you know. They they, they come in and they find out what wasn't working or what was busted underneath this, this wall or this demo that they had already done. It's almost like Paul is saying here as he's writing this that God tore down the wall of hostility and what he saw was a bunch of disjointed people and said, I have to do something to reconnect all of these pieces because I've got a, a building project in mind and if you guys all stay disjointed, even though the wall has been torn down, if you don't connect, then the power of what I'm trying to do won't actually work all of all of my plan out does this make sense God, God is saying through Paul those who were near and those who were far away the the Jews who were God's chosen people they were brought near to God but they were still broken and then the Gentiles who are all of the rest of us right, were brought near to God from being way far away without any hope without any covenant that was written for us we were brought into a new covenant but we still got issues and God is saying, I- I've actually got a plan. You see, through Jesus, I will rewire you. And this is something that God does in us, but also with us together. There's something about the New Testament church of God that is designed. You can see it in the book of Acts. It- it's designed from the very beginning to bring uh, disparate people People of different groups and nationalities and histories and and family origin stories. Bring them all together and say, I'm making a new family out of all of your bustedness. God is rewiring all of the brokenness so that we become something new. Paul writes about it in this way in uh, his letter to uh, his first letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we are we all share the same spirit. So it used to, before the New Covenant, it used to take all kinds of work to stay in God's good graces. You had to make sacrifices regularly. You know, there were annual sacrifices. There were monthly sacrifices. There were, oops, I messed up sacrifices. You know, all, all kinds of sacrifices. That was under the old covenant or the old law. It required sacrifice for sin. Under the new covenant, Jesus becomes the sacrifice so that, like Paul says in verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So the result of God's rewiring project is that what used to be disconnected from God and from each other has now been reconciled together to God through Christ. So demolition and then reconciliation. We've got to rewire this this project. And then actually relatively quickly we move on to the third phase of this rebuilding project, which is now we get to reconstruction. Now we get to the part where we get to see the new thing. What is the new thing that God is building after he's destroyed or demolished or torn down the wall? Paul describes it like this in verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints. Listen, no longer foreigners and strangers. That that word foreigner is a reference to those Gentiles. You didn't belong inside the kingdom. But now because of this, you are brought in to be, you're not a foreigner anymore. And, and you weren't a stranger. You weren't that isolated group of Jews anymore. You're now brought in to a group that is known by the whole world. You get to be a part of the larger story. You're not foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with all the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which uh, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. By the way, just for construction purposes, I I am not a construction person, uh, but I did go to a museum one time and they had an exhibit that I learned about this. It was a children's museum, so I definitely was able to understand it. Have you ever seen those, the, the, the projects at the museums where you build the arch, you know? And you have to build the arch with the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the one that goes uh, in, right in the middle on an arch. Sometimes they call it the capstone. Uh, and and the, the cornerstone is the one that goes in the middle of these two pieces of, of archway that would otherwise fall over. And all of the weight of these two pieces of archway lean on what's called the cornerstone or the capstone right? And if that cornerstone is removed, and in fact, I have a really epic slow-mo video of one of my daughters at this museum. Uh, we had built this with like these big giant foam bricks. We had built this archway and there was the cornerstone right there. We put it in and all of the weight of these two arches go into it. And there's this video where I, where I have Sela. Uh, she punches the cornerstone like like an Avenger. You know, she punches it out, right, like that, and the whole thing just f- flies all over the place. Uh, that's exactly the point that Paul wants us to understand here, that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. This new covenant is built on the weight of Christ. He's the one that holds it all together. Not on the weight of who you are, not on the weight of what you can do, your sacrifice or your goodness, but on the weight of Jesus holding it all together. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So, so God literally built a new house for us to be a part of. And if we're a part of this <clears throat> if we're a part of this new house then we're given a citizenship that comes along with this new place of dwelling which means we're given a new identity and a new way to live according to the country of our new nationality the, this new citizenship by the way seems to override any other citizenship we're no longer foreigners he says you're not a foreigner this would be like Pastor Mark, never bragging about being Canadian, which would be miraculous. You're not a foreigner in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, God would almost look at you and say, I don't care what country you're from. Where do you hold your primary citizenship? Right? So you become... Citizens of God's household or God's kingdom. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul reflects on this. Starting in verse 13, he says, Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Jesus Christ. And then skip down to verse 18 and he says, For I have often told you now and I say it again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross. It, by the way, in context, he's actually talking about people who call themselves people of the way of Jesus, but they don't actually live the way of Jesus. They're actually what he would call enemies of the cross. Their end is actually destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in, is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Here, here's where Paul turns it around. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about this citizenship that, that seems to call for an allegiance that is higher than the allegiance we would give to anyone or anything else. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, You are a chosen people. This is talking to you, the saints, those who call themselves Christians. You are a chosen people. A royal, implying nationality. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's very own possession. Meaning, I'm not sharing you with anybody. There is no dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. As a result, 1 Peter chapter 2 goes on, as a result, you can now show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Praise God. Verse 10 says, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, and now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And now we have come full circle because the strangers and the foreigners have been united into a new citizenship and called strangers and foreigners and temporary residents, not to each other, but to the world given the ministry of reconciliation that we would call other people into this highest citizenship. We are strangers and foreigners, not to one another. Not to the folks who went to another church this Sunday. We are citizens, family members, part of the same tribe with one another. Those of us who would call Jesus the cornerstone of our lives, the capstone of our church, we are all part of the same citizenship, but we are foreigners in this world calling people to join the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. This is our highest calling. This is the purpose that we are meant to live on. As citizens of God's kingdom, we become foreigners in in this world. And there, again, is something extremely counter-cultural in this. Because much of the American church has merged citizenships, claiming that American pride has a place in God's kingdom. Paul is calling us to lay down dual citizenship in our hearts and to give our highest allegiance to God. Now, before, before you protest on that, This is not to say that to be a Christian, you have to give up your American citizenship. If you have one, Mark and I are great representatives of what it looks like to be citizens of multiple places in the world. I'm an English citizen. I was born there, my father is English. I'm a German citizen, my mother is German. And so I inherited her nationality. I am a permanent resident here in the United States, and I thank God that I get to live here. I'm, I'm not standing here telling you, let's hate America in order to be good Christians. No, the point is, why are you so passionate about America? Isn't there a greater kingdom? right? If Pastor Mark came up here and said, hey, you know what? Canada is the greatest country in the whole world. Uh, and, and it would be great if you all could just recognize that Canada is a place we should all give our hearts to. You go, no, no, no. I've got a, there's a, there, you don't understand. I'm, I'm not living in Canada. I'm not going to give my heart to Canada. And Paul would look at you and say, right. And you're only a temporary resident here. Your heart actually is in the kingdom of heaven. So, no one's asking you to run around trashing America. Please don't waste your energy doing that. Yeah, we've got problems. Let's pray for that. Let's be a part of the kingdom of light in the world of darkness, right? But this isn't an American story. This is a kingdom of heaven story, right? And by the way, just for the record, if I was preaching this sermon in Canada, I would just have to say Canada instead of America, (laughs) right? This is just part of the human condition that we get mixed up with what kingdom we actually are meant to give our allegiance to. And as Christians, you are called into a different nationality. That's not to say you can't be proud to be an American person, do you, boo? But, but be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. The question is whose allegiance does your heart give or where does your heart give allegiance? I think think the the point there, the heart, is that we get in trouble when we flip the order, right? We see a lot of people using Christian language, but to benefit their American vision. Paul used his Roman citizenship once, and, and, and the interesting thing is he used it so that he could get out of a beating so that he could preach the gospel. So Paul only leaned on his Roman citizenship so that he could expand the kingdom of heaven. Not the other way around. And that is subtle, but very important. The kingdom that you work to build reveals the citizenship that rules your heart. Whose kingdom are you working to build? Paul calls us to be singularly focused in our citizenship. But then he also calls us to a very clear foundation. In verse 20, he says that this building that God is building, this new restoration reconciled project is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. I believe that there is a subtle warning here to make sure that there are no unapproved elements in the foundation. I did some study about how foundations work and why they crack and break. Uh, this week in preparing for this sermon, and I learned something interesting. Number one is that if there are two different kinds of soil underneath a foundation, uh, that over time can cause the foundation to have problems and can result in a cracked foundation. But something new that I, I had never heard of before uh, was, was talking about uh, tree roots and how when tree roots get into the foundation underneath a building what people often think is that tree roots will cause a problem if they grow uh, too large and push the foundation push up against the foundation and then crack the foundation and, and apparently that's not the case apparently that the, the the problem with tree roots and foundations is related to something called transpiration Transpiration is the process by which moisture is carried from tree and plant roots to the leaves. So transpiration is the process by which roots suck up the moisture in the ground around the roots, and then pull it into the tree, and then give that moisture to the to the leaves. And then and we're by the way very thankful for this process because that's what helps create oxygen. Right? So you you are grateful for trees. But then it's released into the atmosphere and all that, and then that process continues to go uh, on and on and on. And interestingly enough, it's not that roots push up that breaks the foundation. It's that roots underneath the foundation draws moisture out of the soil underneath the foundation. It dries out the ground, and eventually the, the soil shrinks and drops down from away from underneath the foundation, and the foundation becomes weaker over time. So when we allow roots of another tree, for example, the ideals of manifest destiny or the American dream or the allure of money or uh, promiscuity or pleasure of any kind, when we allow roots of another kind of tree to grow under the foundation of our faith, we, we risk a kind of spiritual transpiration. The life provided by God's Spirit is sucked up by the roots of this other tree. The good soil that we're meant to cultivate for God's word grows dry in our lives. And the foundation is fickle and is easily broken. Two two examples of this danger. The danger of nationalism. There's a lot of conversations about Christian nationalism. Is it okay to be a nationalist nationalist? and also be a Christian. By the way, the short answer is no, but let me talk to you about that for a second. The danger of nationalism is not only in the way that it breeds contempt for those outside of your nation of choice. The danger of nationalism is that it draws life out of the foundation of your singular commitment to Christ and his kingdom. It says I have a dual loyalty here. I will die for one country. The question is whom will you die for? And I know the answer to that because I know whom you are living for. Again, whose kingdom you are working to build reveals the loyalty, the allegiance in your heart. The danger of the love of money, for example, is a, a very popular thing to go after money. Uh, not only is, does Scripture warn us that, that the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, But the love of money draws life out of our ability to trust God to meet our needs. And therefore, when you want to build a life trusting that God is your provider, you've got another source that's drawing all of your faith out of you, and you don't ultimately have a strong foundation of trust that God is your provider. And then when a need comes along, your brain goes to what you trust the most. How can I figure this out to get money to keep on building my life? And God would say, I want you to trust me because I am building your life. And, I, and I've got all the cattle on a thousand hills. And, and God said if you would pursue, seek first the kingdom of heaven, then all of these other things, like all of the needs, the tangible needs that you have, all that stuff will just be added to you. But if you have planted a different kind of tree, maybe called the love of money, because that's what you trust, then, then the, the nutrients and the life will be sucked out from underneath you. The foundation. And, and again, these are just two examples of kinds of roots that we can allow to grow under and ruin the foundation of what God wants to build in our lives. So we see that God wants to do a spiritual restoration project in us. He wants to tear down walls that would divide us from Him and from other people. He, he wants to reconcile us to God and us to one another. And he wants to reconstruct a new building that is built in a solid foundation and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the questions have to come to us Have I allowed God to tear down the dividing wall? Have I placed my faith in Jesus? And that, that isn't have I said a prayer, but have, am I living differently because I've become a disciple of the way of Jesus Christ? Have I come alive through faith in Christ's death and resurrection? We would have to ask ourselves questions like, have I allowed God to rewire my life? Meaning, am I living in unity with God and am I living in unity with God's people, the church? I have a lot of conversations with young people, especially people who are new to the faith. They have to figure out, how do I rewire my connections and my relationships? Because I'm not connected to God's people. One of the greatest attacks that the enemy has perpetuated against the church in the world over the last 18 months has been the attack on the community gathering together of the body of Christ. In fact, there's a growing conversation of people who call themselves Christians who are very comfortable saying, oh, 2020 actually proved to me that I don't need to be a part of the church. And part of the temptation for that is because the church has said, well, we're just going to put everything online and stayed there. And this this can be one of those moments where all the folks watching online right now feel very guilty, and we want to make sure that that is never the case because we're so thankful that we can extend community over the Internet. But one of the values that we have here is that we all belong. And so it's going to be a challenge for us moving into the future to continue to help folks who are watching us online right now feel like they still belong. One of my favorite ways that that has expressed itself in recent weeks is our gathering groups actually has, uh, we, Sharon and I popped into one of the gathering groups, uh, and, and I, I wish I had time to go to all of them. Uh, we just had time to only go to one of them, and I saw some friends there who join us regularly online, and they're still a part of the community because we're resisting that attack that says I'm not wired in connection to God's people. So, are you wired? And by the way, uh, let's not fall into the the other side of that trap that says, well, I attended church in person on Sunday, so I'm obviously wired to the community. No, you're not. You're sitting in a chair looking at a guy talk to you right now. This is not community. This is a TED talk. (laughs) This is not community. Hopefully, this is life giving, but this is a classroom, this is a staff meeting. This is not community. It's part of the church. But are you wired to the church? Or is there a place in the back of your mind that you say, I could live without it? Can I just tell you, you can't. It's a lie. You cannot. I think a final question that we would ask is whether or not our foundation is pure and strong. Is there anything other than God's kingdom drawing on my life? I wrote that sentence in my notes, and I deleted YouTube from my phone. That was a confession. Is there anything drawing on my life that isn't the kingdom of heaven? Is God able to build his house without anything else getting in the way? I want to lead us in a time of communion as we come to the end of this gathering. When you walked into this room today, you uh, hopefully were offered something that looks like this. And there is a cracker in there and some juice in there. I'm going to ask my friend Marcus if he'd open this for me and hand it back to me today. Uh, If you didn't get one of those, you just feel free to have your hand up in the air and Pastor Mark can run one over to you real quick if you want to join us in taking communion. I want to say to you that no one is expected to or pressured to take communion. At Life Church. we have what's called an open table, which means we're not going to ask you if you're a member of this church or even a member of the kingdom of heaven, but we will tell you this is a serious point of business. Jesus said that we would take communion to remember what Christ has done for us, and if, his, if what he has done has not yet been applied to you, then this is a meaningless practice for you. The power of this moment comes from remembering what Christ has done for us, and as we think about what Christ has done for us, that he tore down the dividing wall between us and God, in community, in a a moment together, doing a practice together, we are going to get to experience how he also tore down the wall between us, as well as how he tore it down between us and God. But I also want to invite you to reflect on the ways that maybe there are things in your life drawing on you, or allegiances that you have given, or ways that you have been disconnected from God and from his people, that as we take communion today, maybe this could also be an act of repentance as well as it is an act of remembrance. The blood of Jesus was shed so that we could have all of our sins washed away. Our sins are washed away through confession and through submission to him. The body of Jesus was broken so that we could become a part of his body through placing our faith in him that we could experience healing instantly in our spiritual connection to him over time as we are sanctified to become more like him. And in other, many other miraculous ways, we gain this healing by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. As we take communion today, I want to invite you to make any confession that you need. The body was broken for you, and whenever you are ready, if you would make confession to Jesus, you would eat and recognize that the blood was also shed for you and that your sins are forgiven. Would you take a moment and just pray? I'm just going to actually have a moment of silence in the room, and I'm going to allow you to talk to Jesus. Thank him for his body and his blood. Say anything that you need to. When you're ready, eat and drink. I'll call us back for our final moment together in just a moment. As you continue to sit in this moment and experience the presence of God, I pray that you would also experience his peace. God, would you give us your peace as we take communion together today? Whether we're doing this in this room, whether we're doing this from a place watching and joining online, would you knit our hearts together with you as we celebrate what you have done, as we commemorate and honor and remember what you have done? that you have tied us together in you. Thank you, Jesus. If you have joined us in taking communion today, I just want to invite you before we do anything else, would you just say thank you to Jesus in your own words for the work and the sacrifice that he has done, for the love that he's extended towards you? You could say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving your love to me. If you have never prayed a prayer like that, this would be a great opportunity for you to say, Jesus, I put my faith in you. Thank you for extending your love and your kingdom to me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. It's been our practice during this series through the book of Ephesians to offer you a prayer uh, to pray during each of the weeks after these sermons. And so I want to conclude our time together uh, like this, uh, with this prayer for the week, inspired by this teaching. Would you pray this uh, with me? And then you can save this uh, for your own prayer throughout the week. This is our prayer. God, that is, that's actually last week's prayer. I'm going to pray it from my notes and then we'll put it online for you later. God, thank you for tearing down the wall between you and me. Help me, God, to keep the walls down between myself and other people. If there are any roots of any other tree growing in the foundation of my faith, help me to remove them. I give all of my allegiance to you and your kingdom. Build my life your way. Unify me with your body, the church, and fill me with your spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.